If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings. And voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. Listen closely. That's not just paint rolling on a wall. It's artistry. A master painter carefully applying Benjamin Moore Regal Select eggshell with deftly executed strokes. The roller, lightly cradled in his hands, applying just the right amount of paint. Mm, It's like hearing poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Faced with the legacy of huge losses of territory, the Byzantine emperor Alexius I Komnenos had asked for a small crack team of Western knights from the Pope to aid him with his struggles. But... He was going to be rather shocked by what turned up on his doorstep. Arriving in waves outside the walls of his capital, Constantinople, between late 1096 and early 1097, the Crusaders had arrived. But as we'll reveal in this episode, it had been a long and arduous journey across Europe to get there. I'm Emily Briffitz, and in this new History Extra podcast series, we'll be travelling back in time to walk in the footsteps of the Crusaders as we trace the story of the First Crusade, taking in their triumphs and failures, witnessing the hardships they faced and seeing the landscapes they traversed through their eyes. We'll also be taking in the perspective of those who lived in the Holy Land and the regions the armed pilgrims passed through, speaking to a range of top historical experts to challenge some of the most popular perceptions about the Crusades. And, to top this all off, we'll be delving into the Chronicles and revealing just why we continue to talk about the Crusades to this day. In this second episode, we'll reconstruct the journey that saw the Crusaders leave their homes and end up outside the gates of Constantinople, dealing with logistical challenges and fraught relationships along the way. And once again, we're joined by our historical travelling companion, Jonathan Phillips, Professor of Crusading History at Royal Holloway, University of London. Urban II's speech at Clermont had sparked an extraordinary reaction across Western Europe, with tens of thousands of people taking the cross. One of the consequences of that 
practicalities. People needed to get money. How are they going to finance this expedition? They need to get equipment together, horses, arms, clothing. They also have to solve disputes. If you're going away and there's an issue of tension or dispute with a local rival or neighbour, that needs to get settled too. You also need to work out who's going to look after your lands, who's going to govern them in your absence. Other practicalities. Route. How are you going to get to the Holy Land? Slightly depends where you're starting from, of course. If you're an Italian crusader in, say, Genoa, fairly obviously you're going to sail there because you have the shipping. If you're in Northern Europe, you to work out which land route you might take down to Constantinople. Urban had set a departure date to the 15th of August, 1096. So an element of sort of planning, thinking ahead there. And given the link with Alexios, it's Constantinople. That's the rendezvous point that people have got set in mind. I think we have to imagine messengers, emissaries going across Western Europe saying, well, should we travel together? Shall I work with you? Natural alliances, family members, people working out affinities and practicalities of looking to coordinate their travel. And some contingents were more prepared than others. The Normans have the most experience of warfare on a large scale recently. Of course, they conquered England in 1066. They've been fighting in southern Italy and Sicily. They've got a, a real sense of knowing what they're doing. And there is clear evidence of familiarity, some traditions of warfare from those other campaigns amongst the Crusaders. While the main contingents are planning, drawing their ideas together, one group really jumps the gun. This is what used to be called the Peasants' Crusade because people thought it was just people from a very low social status, simply peasants. It's now called the People's Crusade. Historians can see that there's a number of nobles, no dominant figure like Raymond of Saint-Gilles or Beaumont of Taranto, but there are nobles on it. So the People's Crusade gets going in April 1096. About 30,000 people set out from northern France and the Rhineland then. That's an astonishingly fast time to get organised in the medieval period, in fact in any period for warfare at a distance certainly, given that the crusade was called at the end of November 1095. Part of these people are being drawn towards the crusade by Peter the Hermit, an apocalyptic charismatic visionary who preaches around the Ile de France and then goes into Cologne and the Rhineland. And Peter's preaching unleashes another profoundly unpleasant and unexpected facet of the crusading story, which is the attacks on the Jews of the Rhineland. In the atmosphere of heightened religiosity around Speyer and Mainz and a need for cash, the Crusaders decided and took it upon themselves to remove money from the Jews forcibly. The Jews try to buy them off, but synagogues are torched. There's mass force baptisms. The Crusaders take it upon themselves to see the Jews as the killers of Christ and to punish them for what happened in the past. The church is explicitly against this, but the People's Crusade take the law into their own hands and kill hundreds and hundreds of Jews in these areas of Germany particularly. The authorities react eventually, but these masses move out towards Hungary. Some of them there are massacred because the Hungarian king is just so frustrated at their lack of discipline, the fact that they just ransack land and food from him. The main group reaches Constantinople in late July, early August. Alexios is horrified. He'd asked for a few hundred disciplined Western knights to help him, and he gets this absolute rabble turning up on his doorstep. They are just seizing food from the locals. 
really something that appalls him and he finds quite difficult to control. He manages to get them over the Bosphorus. This is a clever stroke on his part. Of course, once you've shipped them over the Bosphorus and you take your boats back, they're stuck in Asia Minor. And there, a group of them are waiting. They really should have waited for the main armies of the First Crusade, but they're so lacking in discipline and trying to search out supplies, they end up moving into Asia Minor, where Kilij Arslan, the Seljuk Sultan, attacks and massacres them in October 1096. Has to be said, some of the church writers in Western Europe reflecting on this say that it really is God's judgment for the People's Crusade attacking the Jews. But this was only the first wave of the crusading army. The main armies left Western Europe in the summer and autumn of 1096. I think we have to imagine that moment of departure. Anytime soldiers go to war is a moment of very heightened emotion. You're leaving your family, your place of home, your place of worship, everything that you've grown up with. And it's a very localized society in the late 11th century for many people. People often don't travel great distances from home at all at that time. And yet they're heading thousands of miles into the unknown. And a lot of writers talk about that moment of departure, men leaving their wives, their children, and with the benefit of hindsight, many of them will never get back. Processions as well, prayers, religious rituals, all designed to give the Crusaders some safety and to pray for their safe return. Later in 1096, the Crusaders start to gather at Constantinople. Hugh of Vermandois reaches there in November 1096. Christmas 1096, Godfrey of Bouillon reaches Constantinople. Some skirmishing with the Greeks. They're really not sure of each other at this point. The Westerners are very difficult. They don't quite know how to react to Alexios. And what did he think of the Crusaders? He did not want tens of thousands of armed pilgrims turning up on his doorstep. But he's got to deal with it. He's got to adapt to the situation. He would have known from diplomatic negotiations before and just general trade and the movement of news, something about what was happening. So he would have had a chance to plan and to strategize what he was going to do with the Crusaders. Well, he wants their obedience. He wants them to behave themselves around Constantinople for a start, which means he's got to feed them. And again, He's got a big population in Constantinople. He's got to plan that kind of thing. But if you feed them, they'll probably behave. He tries to get the crusade leaders to swear an oath of fealty to him. He wants to be their lord. And that is something that most of them eventually are persuaded to do. They're also flattered into doing it. Alexios is a great ruler. He's the emperor of Byzantium. When the crusaders see Constantinople for the first time, they are utterly utterly amazed. It's an enormous city, hundreds of thousands of people in the population. It's the successor to Rome with its great walls, the Hagia Sophia, churches, relics. Paris at this time has got maybe 20 or 30,000 people in it. Nothing, nothing compares to Constantinople. And Alexios also knows how to put on a good show. He can do ritual, he can do robes, he can do splendor, and he can also make sure that he puts you in his place when he receives you. He is the dominant figure. And so the Western Europeans are in this situation where they are, they're proud men. They've got fighting men with them, but Alexios is clearly establishing himself as the top dog, if at all possible. What he really wants from the crusade in the medium term, I think, is the re-establishment 
of the Byzantine Empire, or large parts of it. He'd lost much of Asia Minor to the Seljuks in the 1070s, 1080s, and he wants to reconstitute Byzantine lands, a big safety net against the Seljuks. So he will help the Crusaders, and he will also provide them with food and supplies, and the lands that were formerly his that they take will return to his control. That's the sort of deal that he's after. He meets them and he moves them across the Bosphorus into Asia Minor. That's the crucial thing. Once the Crusaders are across the Bosphorus, they gather, Alexios joins them, and they prepare to step into the unknown for their first conflict with the Muslims at the Siege of Nicaea. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Jonathan has brought us from the heartlands of Western Europe all the way to the edge of Asia Minor. But now I want to take a deep dive into some of the major moments and themes of this stage of the campaign. As you'll remember, Pope Urban II's landmark preaching campaign took Western Europe by storm. But before we move on, we should probably mention another popular preacher, Peter the Hermit, whose notoriety primarily stems from his charismatic role whipping up support for the People's Crusade. Ultimately, the People's Crusade was a failure, ending in a massacre at the Battle of Civito in October 1096. But was it a failure from the start? I asked Natasha Hodgson, Associate Professor of Medieval History at Nottingham Trent University. They weren't really a kind of organised army to, to an extent. I mean, they were made up of eight different armies from different places. Peter's nominally a figure in charge, but 
they all have their own different leaders. Some get sidelined before they even get anywhere near Constantinople. The troops of Emiko of Leinigen, who go off on a pogrom against Jewish people in the Rhineland. It's really shocking behaviour. It just kind of shows that there isn't perhaps as clear a leadership as there could be. The other thing to mention about this, I suppose, is the fact that they go before the date set by the Pope. And that doesn't help in terms of organisation because they're so enthused or inspired by the message that they kind of set off straight away and they didn't perhaps hang around for the harvest that they could have you know, taken more supplies with them, that sort of thing. So again, it just speaks of a kind of lack of preparedness, lack of organisation. This first wave of crusaders has often been spoken about as a rabble of religious superfans, largely made up of peasants. But, according to Natasha, sources at the time had their reasons to present the movement in this way. They're not as disorganised a rabble as some of the medieval historians would like you to believe. And there's a good reason for that, which is that if, as they thought, the crusade was divinely ordained, how do you explain the fact that they failed miserably and were defeated They must have done something wrong or they must have been the wrong sort of people or they must have been engaging in lots of licentious behaviour and having sex with lots of people, which is all the criticisms that are levelled at this group. They don't get necessarily an unbiased report in the medieval chronicles. I'm pretty sure that they probably did all of the awful things that they're accused of. (laughs) But at the same time, they weren't just peasants. Shortly before the People's Crusade met its defeat, the second wave of the crusading army set off in the August of 1096, the papally appointed start time. And they too faced a number of problems en route to Constantinople. Just travelling through Europe, they seem to have caused huge upset in various different areas where they're trying to get resources. They weren't particularly organised, you know, they hadn't, Some of them had money, some of them didn't. How did they supply themselves with this huge army passing through? It caused a lot of friction in Hungary, in areas like in Eastern Europe as they travelled through, that there must have been times of plenty and times of want at various different stages. Things like the capture of booty were really important for keeping the Crusaders going and getting finance, getting weapons, getting all of those kinds of things thinking about how they got along with each other. As this is the crusading army that we will largely be following throughout this series, we should probably establish who was in charge. When we think about the leadership of the First Crusade, we have key figures who perhaps the Pope initially intended to have leading roles, like Raymond of Saint-Gilles, who's from the the Provençal area of of southern France, and Adhemar of Le Puy who is the papal legate from the same region. So they're kind of obviously key figures from the outset. We have other important characters like Hugh of Vermandois, who's the brother of the King of France, and also Robert Kurthose, who is the son of William the Conqueror. He's obviously been contesting the right to England with his brother at that time and decides to sell off Normandy in order to pay for his crusade to the Holy Land. So clearly he's an interesting one because he's taking a bit of a gamble, really, in the sense that he's hoping to go, I think, in order to create a new sort of reputation for himself. 
and we've got the three brothers, Godfrey, Eustace and Baldwin. So Godfrey of Bouillon is the one who finally becomes the first king of Jerusalem. His brother Eustace goes on to be Count of Boulogne and his brother Baldwin also becomes king of Jerusalem after Godfrey. So they become more and more important as the crusade develops. And then, of course, finally, we can't ignore the southern Italian contingent. So we have Bohemond of Taranto, who's also seen as a very powerful leader and charismatic, I think, character on the First Crusade, who's able to persuade others to follow him, and his nephew Tancred. And both of those go on to have, again, a very significant role in that settlement process of the Crusader states. So those are the ones to look out for. But there are a few that I think should maybe have more attention than they ordinarily get. One in particular being Arnulf of Schock, who ends up becoming Patriarch of Jerusalem after the First Crusaders capture it. And he starts off as a chaplain under Robert of Normandy, but really kind of builds up his profile to be the main clerical figure by the end of the First Crusade. Despite the Pope's intentions to place his papal legate Adhemar of Le Puy and Raymond of Saint-Gilles, who was Count of Toulouse, in charge, this didn't quite go to plan. And with so many different contingents of the crusading army, all under different leadership, there was sure to be a few teething issues. One of my favourite chroniclers for the First Crusade, although he wasn't present, he was in the circle of Beaumont and Tancred, is Ralph of Caen, who wrote the Gesta Tancredi after the First Crusade. And he hated the Provençals. He was just so rude about them. <laughs> he said they were awful and that, you know, they were absolutely the worst type of people. There's clearly regional differences. There are lots of different languages going on. One of the things we know not so much about is how these different groups communicated with each other where they didn't have languages in common. Clearly then the clergy play an important role as they can communicate with each other in Latin. Whether when someone gave a big speech or whatever, they had simultaneous translations going on into different languages is something that might also have happened. So yeah, communication just within the army itself was a major effort. Having set off from homelands across Western Europe, the Crusaders planned to rendezvous at Constantinople before heading down into Asia Minor and beyond. I asked Jonathan Harris, Professor of the History of Byzantium at Royal Holloway, University of London, what it must have been like to arrive at the city's walls for the first time. They're passing through the Baltic, it's not so very different. And relatively verdant and that kind of thing. So I don't think they'd be surprised by the terrain, but they would have been surprised when they got to Constantinople. Because remember that this is a period where in Western Europe, there are virtually no really large towns. Okay, there's Paris, which maybe could number 20,000 people. Constantinople has about 300,000 in this period. I think somebody, there was a, an English chronicler, reckoned there were more people in Constantinople than there were in England between the Humber and the Thames. So you're also in a world where the largest stone building you've seen, where there might be a, a square keep for a castle somewhere on a hill, there might be a parish church. So very large stone structures are going to be new to you. You arrive and here are the land walls of Constantinople, 96 towers marching across the land as far as the eye can see. If you arrive at the middle of the wall, you can't see where it starts. 
and you can't see where it ends. And so that would have been a shock. And then beyond the wall, the land just covered in houses and churches and buildings as far as the eye can see. There is just no equivalent in Western Europe of this time. And a lot of it built of stone, a lot of wattle and dwarf and this kind of thing. So it really is, it would have been a big surprise. It would have been impressed. Having said that, most of them never get to see the city, of course, beyond the walls. Because there's no way that the Byzantines are going to allow fully armed men in large numbers into their city. Nobody would. The king of Hungary was the same. He said, you know, there's no way we're letting you in the town. You stay outside. We'll let your leaders in. So the leaders are allowed in and they're given dinner in the imperial palace. And they are impressed, but they're kind of grudgingly impressed because they don't want to be seen as country bumpkins. They like to think, well, these guys think they're really good, don't they, with their palaces. But we're just as good. So one of them actually marches into the throne hall and plonks himself down on the emperor's throne which is a total breach of etiquette, really. I mean, you're, you're, only the emperor is supposed to sit on it. So he does that, and then he's politely asked to move on. And he immediately goes into this long speech all about his prowess in war, because the, the Westerns very much felt that the one thing where they excelled the Byzantines, in spite of the Byzantines having more money and all these big cities and buildings, is they weren't as good at fighting as they were. The Byzantines did tend to see Western Europeans as being rather boastful and full of themselves. So the Crusaders have arrived at Constantinople. And it's at this time that we should probably introduce one of our major historical sources for the First Crusade, Anna Komnina. Anna Komnina is the daughter of the Emperor Alexius. And it's thanks to her that we know about the Byzantine view of the First Crusade. She wrote this biography of her father, quite a laudatory biography of her father, some decades after these events. She herself is an eyewitness. She was a child at the time. She was about 13. So she would have seen the Crusaders, been aware they were there, but she wouldn't have been obviously quite at the the centre of things. But as she herself says, she spoke to her father in later years. She spoke to relatives who were there. And that's how she gathered her information. So it's actually a kind of eyewitness source. Obviously, it's very bias from the Byzantine point of view. Of course, one would expect that. But it's extremely informative. And it's also quite an evocative description. It's not a kind of year-by-year account like some monastic chronicle. It's very much her impressions. And there's quite colourful descriptions in it. And as Danielle Park, teaching fellow at the University of Leicester, told me, Anna was mistrustful of the arriving crusaders. She's absolutely convinced that despite everything the papacy has said, that Jerusalem is a ploy, that they're not really interested in getting to Jerusalem. She's convinced that they're after Constantinople. And from a Byzantine perspective, that makes absolute sense because they're not seeing themselves as Byzantine. She sees herself as the heir to the Roman Empire. So she sees herself as that continuation of the Roman past and She sees these men as new upstarts from the West who are just trying to get Constantinople for themselves. And why wouldn't they want it? Because there's so many relics. You don't need to go to Jerusalem if you're in Constantinople because you've got access to that amazing treasury and reliquary collection. So as far as she's concerned, it doesn't make sense that they're going to Jerusalem. She's convinced it's a pretext. It's a ploy. She gives us a very different account of who the Crusaders are what they're after, and how she's trying to fit it into that wider context of Western and Byzantine relations. And it really fits with this idea that there are cross-purposes 
when the first crusaders get to Constantinople. Alexius, he's probably expecting a really small, easily manageable contingent of men that can be assimilated into the Varangian Guard. So she really gives us that outsider's perspective of this large contingent turning up in Constantinople under extremely suspicious circumstances. So how did Anna feel about the Crusaders descending on her father's capital? She certainly says that there were an awful lot of them and they outnumbered the sand of the seashore and the stars of heaven. And apparently, she says, there was a horde of locusts that went in front of them. So it's almost like she's saying these are sort of locust people arriving from nowhere and then sort of eating everything and moving on. That's the way she's describing them. So for Anna, the civilised people are the Byzantines. The barbarians are actually these fellow Christians, these Western Europeans. And one of the features of barbarians is they never come in one or twos. There are always millions of them. And so she's fitting them in with that. Now, she's exaggerating, of course, but these were large armies. I think by the time all the crusade armies came together, there may have been about 80,000 people, which by the standards of the day is a very, very large host indeed, because, you know, a few thousand is is a respectable army in the Middle Ages. And with such a large number of these people descending on the city like locusts, there were bound to be a few hiccups. Well, when the Crusaders arrived at Constantinople, there was a a few misunderstandings, shall we say, almost inevitably. Here's a large body of armed young men ready for a fight and anything that annoys them, there's going to be a fight. And there was a fight with some Byzantine troops at the walls. Took place in April of 1097. And this is the, you know, these soldiers belong to the contingent of Godfrey de Bouillon. And as it happened, the Byzantine troops are led by a man called Briennios, and Briennios later became the husband of Anna Comnina. So it's quite clear he's probably telling her about this. And it's quite a long description of it. You know, obviously gives her husband a very heroic role. But the main thing is that Briennios said to his archers, look, fire, but don't actually hit anybody. Or if you do want to hit somebody, hit only to wound and not to kill them. They really don't want to kill the Crusaders because they, they see them, they are allies. They're just being a bit bumptious and they need to be brought to order. So that's what's going on. And then there's this marvellous description about the bows singing and the arrows whistling through the air, which is very much influenced by Homer and his account of the, the Trojan War. That's where she's getting it from, as well as well as from her husband. OK, so there seems to be some friction here. But if we look at the broader picture, how willing were the Byzantines to support the Crusaders? Obviously, we're dependent on what Anna Comnina says. She's writing quite a long time afterwards, so there's a lot of hindsight in what she says. She's obviously trying to present her father in the best possible light, so everything Alexius does is good and right and true and all the rest of it. But reading between the lines, I suppose what we can say is is that the Byzantines, to some extent, welcome these people because they see their potential. If we unleash this lot in Asia Minor we are likely to be able to regain our territory. On the other hand, they're a bit anxious because they think, actually, yes, but on the, they might want to seize some of our territory themselves. Because don't forget, some of the people leading the First Crusade, Alexis had met before. There was a man called Bohemond of Toronto. He's one of the leaders. And he'd actually been one of the Normans who'd invaded the Byzantine Empire in 1081. Alexius had actually fought him at the Battle of Larissa in 1083. And Alexius 
says, well, okay, so that time you came to grab territory and this time you're here as an ally. Can I be 100% sure? So although Anna is perhaps being a, a little bit too kind to Alexis, you can see the problem. So this is something that could be an asset to us, but we're going to have to handle it very, very carefully. And Beaumont in particular seems to have really stuck out to Anna Komnena as one to watch. Beaumont is presented as somebody who's completely untrustworthy, a complete villain, and yet he's kind of heroic as well. He, he really is. I mean, he's tall, he's the centre of attention wherever he goes, he inspires awe by his very appearance... And when you look at him, you wonder where, you know, where Anna is getting all this from. You suspect that the model for Bermond is actually Odysseus in the Iliad and the Odyssey, because Odysseus is a hero, but he's also very, very tricky. He really is. He will win by guile. For example, he defeats the Cyclops by waiting till the Cyclops goes to sleep and then poking his eye out. You know, and it's the same with Bohemond, really. So it's funny, he's both a villain and a hero. So why, you ask yourself, well, of course, it's in order to big up Alexius. Because anyone can defeat somebody who's useless, but to be able to defeat a kind of supervillain, then, you know, it's like your average James Bond film, isn't it? The villain always has to be this, this person of incredible stature, totally evil. But wow, are they clever? And only James Bond can beat them. Well, it's the same here. Only Alexius, and Anna says this, could beat a foe as formidable as this. With such villainous foes as Beaumont outside their gates asking for help, what could Alexius do to keep the crusading force, and in particular their leadership, in line? Well, Alexius's tool for keeping control of the First Crusade is to get the leaders to swear an oath. And that sounds simple, but of course it's caused endless controversy because we can't be 100% sure exactly what the oaths involved. We have Anna who tells us quite clearly the oath was this. We promise to give back to you, Alexius, any cities we capture. So basically, it's Alexius's way of ensuring these people don't grab Byzantine territory, that they actually give it back to him so he gets his goal of, of recovering Asia Minor. And that's absolutely fine. The only problem with that, immediately you think, hang on a minute. Why should anyone swear a no saying, yes, I will do this? Because the thing is, if you agree to do something, most of us would like something in return. And Anna doesn't mention that. She doesn't mention that Alexius promised anything in return to the Crusaders. Well, that's where we have to look at the Latin chronicles, which say that Alexius did promise something in return. He said he would supply them by land and sea. That is to say, he would support the Crusade. He'd keep them supplied. And a lot of Crusade leaders seem to expect that he's going to come with them to Jerusalem. So there's a bit of the dialogue of the death going on here. Yes, I mean, these oaths are also something that's very, it's very common in Western Europe, is the swearing of an oath, that was the, the oath of fealty. This certainly happened. That's what Harold Godwinson did to William the Conqueror. It's very common. So presumably Alexis is thinking, well, these people know about oaths. This is my way of controlling them. Not everyone is very happy about swearing the oaths. Some take some persuading, but most of them do. So that's really what the oaths are about. But the problem is there are two agendas here. Alexis's agenda is get my land back, whereas the Crusaders' agenda is get to Jerusalem. That is the seeds of the misunderstanding, unfortunately. And was this conflict of interests felt by the Crusaders? When it comes to what the Crusaders thought of Alexis, to some extent we're prisoners again of sources written afterwards. 
albeit not very long afterwards, when there'd been a certain amount of falling out. But certainly there was a chronicle called the Jester Francorum, and that refers to Alexius as the abominable emperor. It doesn't have a good word for him at all. He's a total baddie who is completely uncooperative and actually trying to stymie the crusade. He's actually working against it almost in in some respects. So it's very anti-him. Now, we might want to take that with a pinch of salt because there are other sources which suggest otherwise. So Fulcro Chartres, who was another chronicler, he's actually more pro-Alexius. And there is also a contemporary letter written by one of the crusaders, a man called Stephen Count of Blois, And he wrote back to his wife saying, well, you know, having a lovely time in Constantinople, wish you were here. And the emperor has been really kind to us and he's given us lots of gifts and made us really welcome and comfortable. And that's a contemporary source. It's not written afterwards. It's actually written in the spring, early summer of, of 1097. So I think to some extent, the idea that Crusaders at this stage didn't get on with Alexius is perhaps to be taken with a pinch of salt. As a source, Anna's account is really valuable, and in more ways than one. She also provides us with a vital insight into the makeup of the crusading force. And it might not be what you quite expect. Anna is interesting because she comments on the fact that the combatants in the army are accompanied by large numbers of women and children. So this was something she clearly thought was rather unusual and strange. You could say, well, this is her classical Greek training here, because another feature of barbarians is they don't treat their women right. Barbarians allow women to have power, which is not a good thing, and they allow them to wander around, whereas they should be kept sequestered and veiled decently. So she's probably commenting on that. However, that doesn't mean we shouldn't believe her. I think that she's actually reporting absolutely what she saw here because they're not commented very often upon by the Latin chronicles, but every now and then they are mentioned, the women. So Anna's done done us a service here in, in telling us that they do actually play quite a large part in the army. They are there. They're part of the crusade. So what do we actually know about these women and the roles they played on crusade? At the beginning of most narratives, they kind of say, all the women were left behind. And then later on, you have a bit that says, oh, and then the women did this. It's like, hang on a minute, where did they come from? So the lack of names can be a bit of a barrier. There are some examples where women who perhaps shouldn't have been on crusade were on crusade, such as the case of the nun of Trier, who is captured and raped and then returns to the crusading army seeking absolution from the bishop which she receives, but then ultimately decides to go back to her Turkish captor. Should we treat it as factual? Is that some of the men who are in her circle are mentioned, which suggests that this is an identifiable historical figure, but also it serves a purpose in a monastic story about why nuns shouldn't go on crusade. Some of the main crusade leaders took their wives with them on crusade. So you'd have someone like Raymond of Saint-Gilles, the Count of Toulouse, who takes with him his wife, Elvira of Leon Castile. So Raymond basically is one of the wealthiest of the Crusaders and potentially also the guy who Urban II intended to lead the Crusade. He does a lot of the fighting around Tripoli and his wife is there with him and they have a son while they're on Crusade. But there are many others as well. Godvir of Tosni is another who's the wife of Baldwin, who becomes the first king of Jerusalem, she dies en route 
mostly the, the people we know about with names will be noble women. One of the earliest recorded histories of the First Crusade, the Jester Francorum, tells us at various points just how helpful the women were. And it might seem quite basic, but they're performing very significant military auxiliary aid at key points within the battles. So providing water to knights who wouldn't otherwise be able to get a drink in the heat of battle, for instance, is one of the things that is noted for the women being particularly significant and performing a vital role there. We also get insight into women helping build fortifications, so building walls, digging ditches. So they are involved not necessarily in battle, but they're very much near it and involved in it and providing as much help and assistance as they possibly can. The flip side of this coin as well is the attitudes towards women at the time. So part of being a crusader is that you are essentially meant to be living like a monk or like a pilgrim. So you are supposed to be chased until you get to the Holy Sepulchre and fulfil your vow. But there do seem to be large numbers of unattached women who are essentially camp followers and described as such within our sources. So some of them might be more legitimate in the sense that they're laundresses. Others, there seems to be a fear and an expectation that perhaps they're performing other services to the army and that perhaps they're sex workers. So there are various attitudes to the sadly unnamed women accompanying the Crusaders at this time, but it does tell us that they have a wide range of roles to perform, whether they were always seen as licit or illicit. When we think about an army on the move, it's easy to focus on the fighting force and perhaps overlook the large number of non-combatants performing auxiliary roles in the background. And according to Natasha, this has proven to be one of the most enduring misconceptions surrounding the Crusades. My kind of take on the legacy of the Crusades is this particular fascination with the hyper-masculine concept of the Knight Crusader. This idea that this was the most uber-manly man of the medieval period and that that's what a crusader is. When in fact, if you look at the makeup of crusade armies, only, what, 6 to possibly 10% of them were knights. The rest were ordinary people, women, sometimes children, clergy, siege engineers, sailors. All sorts of people are involved in crusading activity. The image of the Knight Crusader is one that's been handed down to us through retellings, first of all, in medieval chronicles, then romances, then art, the 19th century crusade memes now. There's an instant recognition amongst people at a popular level of what a crusade is, but it doesn't bear out what a medieval crusade necessarily was about. From knights and engineers to clergy, women and children, the diverse range of people who arrived at Constantinople were soon ushered across the Bosphorus and into Asia Minor. And with their first targets under 100 miles away, they would soon come into contact with their foe. Many thanks to my experts for today's episode, Professor Jonathan Phillips, Dr Natasha Hodgson, Dr Danielle Park and Professor Jonathan Harris. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Additional checks by Daniel Adamson.
Hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you're keen to find out more, we'll be releasing a special bonus episode exclusively for subscribers, where I'll be reflecting on the series with several of our experts and answering your most pressing questions. You can send in your questions by emailing podcast at historyextra.com or you can message us via Facebook, Instagram or X by Monday the 23rd of October. And make sure you're subscribed to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts to access the episode completely ad-free.